Uh, some of you probably noticed that I'm wearing contacts today. I know my kids all, always notice. They look at me funny, like I'm not a complete person without my glasses. So I was having a little bit of difficulty. So I have my glasses here uh, in case of emergency. But uh, we are back in, in John's Gospel uh, this morning. I realize it's, it's been several weeks since we uh, have been in the Gospel of John. But open up with me to, to John chapter 14. And we're going to be continuing in our, in our study there this morning. But I want you to, even though I asked you to turn to John 14, I want you to, to think about uh, the story of Ehud. Uh, back in, in Judges 3, uh, I'm sure those of you who are left-handed remember the story of Ehud. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, a very prominent story for lefties, uh, and uh, I'm sure m- one of my sons will, will enjoy hearing that story uh, down the road. But uh, Judges 3, uh, th- there is a, a wicked king, uh, Eglon, king of, of Moab, who is uh, reigning over the Israelites. Uh, and, and Ehud uh, is one of the judges that God uh, raised up. Uh, and Ehud is going to go into uh, the throne room of Eglon. Uh, and he's going to uh, become, uh, he's going to ultimately kill him, uh, which is a, a gruesome description there. Uh, again, junior hires like that story uh, when we teach it in, in youth ministry. But, but Ehud comes into the, the throne room and he gets access to the king by by claiming to have a secret message for him and and he comes and he says i have a a message uh, for you from god Uh, and uh, they immediately give him uh, access to the king Uh, and it's amazing what that claim will get you if you come and say i have i have a word from god for you uh, that, that claim immediately uh, elevates one person over another. Uh, I know for those of you that heard, heard my testimony at the, the Super Bowl, uh, that's why I, I grew up in a, uh, in a group where that was often claimed, where, where the leader had uh, special revelation from God. Uh, and w- when he says, I have a word from you, this is what you need to do, how, how, do, you, how do you argue against that? Right. And then to disobey him is to really di- you feel like you're disobeying God. And, and many have used that same statement, that same claim that, that Ehud uh, gave back in, in Judges 3. Uh, but but that, that question and that claim uh, raises uh, additional issues. And uh, one really big question, especially for us as, uh, as New Covenant believers, uh, is how does God... Uh, guide us and teach us uh, here and now. And, and that was a, a question that was on uh, the disciples' hearts and minds in, in what we're studying uh, here in John 14. John 14, we're right in the middle of the upper room discourse, which covers John 13 through 16. Uh, and Jesus ha- has told the disciples uh, that he's going to be leaving, that he's going to be going. And so the, the unspoken question kind of looming out there is then, what are we going to do? Uh, if our teacher, if our instructor, if our, our rabbi, our Lord and master is going to leave, how are we going to know what to do? How are we going to know what to believe? How, how are we going to continue to grow and to be instructed? Now, that is the, the, the question hanging in the air. And as we uh, have been working our way through uh, the upper room discourse, John 14, verse 16 and 17 uh, is, is the beginning of that answer. Uh, and Jesus points to, uh, this is going to be the, the first occasion where he's going to promise the, the coming of the Spirit. And he's going to promise the Spirit ultimately five times in this upper room discourse. 
And in verses 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And several weeks back as we studied this passage, we see that here there was an emphasis upon the coming Holy Spirit, this advocate, the idea of a, of a helper or a legal counsel or somebody who, who comes to the aid of another. The emphasis was upon the Spirit coming and communicating truth and dwelling within those who believe in Jesus. The passage that we're going to be looking at today in chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, we're going to have the second promise of the coming spirit. There's going to be three more after this, and each of them have a little bit different nuance. The one that we're going to look at today is going to emphasize the spirit's role as a teacher. John 15:26 is going to emphasize that the spirit is the spirit of truth who testifies about the son. John 16, verses 7 through 11 is going to emphasize uh, that the Spirit is also a prosecutor, that He's going to convict the world of sin. And then in chapter 16, verses 12 to 15, that He is also going to be the guide who reveals the future and ultimately who glorifies Jesus. But here in, in John 14, verse 25, Jesus begins with a phrase that He's going to use repeatedly again in this upper room discourse. He says, These things I have spoken to you. Uh, he's going to introduce that again, emphasizing, and the way it's worded there in the Greek, it, it emphasizes the completeness of what Jesus has taught and given to the disciples. And then at the end of that verse, he says, while abiding with you. And that just is like a, another kind of stab in the heart to the disciples, reminding them that Jesus won't always uh, be with them physically in their presence, that he is going to be departing from them and they're going to be on their own for a bit, just a short bit. Then in verse 26, Jesus is going to explain how the Spirit is going to continue to teach those disciples after Jesus departs and goes to the Father in heaven. If you look at me at verse 26, it says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And a right understanding uh, of this is, is of the utmost importance because this, is, this pertains to how we are going to be taught, how we are going to grow in the Christian life. How is it that Jesus continues to teach us and guide us even when he isn't here uh, physically to instruct us? The answer is going to be the Spirit. But then we might ask, what kind of a teacher is the Holy Spirit? And in this verse uh, 26, what we see is that Jesus is going to give uh, three descriptions of the Spirit as a teaching spirit of what he's going to do, how he's going to to work to instruct uh, the disciples once Jesus is gone. We're going to look at these three descriptions, but I want to pause and pray and ask uh, for God, for His Spirit to lead us and guide us even as we study the Word now. Father, You are holy, righteous. You are uh, the one to whom all things belong. 
Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord Jesus, you are the one who is worthy, even as we just sang. You are the Holy One, the Righteous One, the one who is worthy to open up the scrolls in the final days. And Spirit, you are the one who has regenerated our hearts, who is working in us even now if we have trusted in Christ, who is opening our eyes to behold and to see wonderful and amazing things in the written word. And I pray that you would lead us and guide us now as we study these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples nearly 2,000 years ago. May they bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. uh, And may you work in and through us uh, for your glory, honor, and praise this morning. We ask in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So we we see these three descriptions that are going to to show us how the Spirit teaches us uh, here and now. Uh, And and the first description is found really in in the the first uh, phrase at the beginning of verse 26. It's two two clauses put together. But the Advocate, uh, the Holy Spirit. And what we can draw out of this is that the teaching Spirit uh, is a holy helper. So these two names are given here uh, in this verse, and really three names are going to be uh, recurring uh, repeatedly in the upper room discourse, describing uh, the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do and how he's going to function. Uh, we saw that the, the first term here has uh, also appeared uh, in verse 16, that the Spirit is an advocate. Again, he is one who appears on behalf of another. He is a, a helping presence, one who, who comes alongside uh, and to, to bring comfort and to strengthen. Strengthen, uh, and it has a legal connotation there, but uh, especially the idea is that of a, a helper, someone who comes to uh, the aid of another. Now, we also see uh, the, the next term that's going to be used repeatedly uh, in verse 17. It says, uh, the spirit of truth. This is also going to be used in chapter 15, verse 26 and 16, 13. So we have the the emphasis of the Spirit as a helper, and we have the emphasis of the Spirit as the one who carries and speaks and communicates truth. Uh, And this also establishes the connection between the the second and third members of the Trinity, because what did Jesus say at the beginning of this very same chapter? In 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, So the Spirit is going to continue and carry forth uh, the the character and the, the message of Jesus. But then there's a third term that's going to be used to describe the Spirit, uh, and it's only used here. And it's actually the the one that you and I are probably most familiar with. Uh, It says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Uh, And just thinking uh, about that and the idea of of holiness. Holiness is the idea of being set apart, uh, of being different. Yes, the idea is... uh, perfect perfection and and spotlessness Uh, and God is holy and set apart from us because we are uh, full of sin and he is without sin. Uh, So you see uh, the holiness uh, of God uh, the Father, God the Son, and uh, the emphasis upon the holiness of the Spirit here. And really the emphasis in these two small statements is upon uh, the Spirit being our helper and uh, upon His holiness. Uh, And kind of tying all of this together and thinking this through, the the Spirit comes and He advocates. He is our helper not to do whatever we want to do, uh, but to come and He helps us with a specific aim and a specific direction in mind. Uh, He has come to indwell us and to, to grow us in 
holiness. He, ha- he has a, a mission to carry out, and that's to make us more and more like the second member of the Trinity, uh, like Jesus, our Savior. Uh, and uh, he is uh, our helper in moving in this direction. And we will only grow uh, in holiness and in Christ likeness uh, as we depend upon uh, the Spirit's strength and the Spirit's power. That's where elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostles continually use uh, phrases to communicate a dependence upon the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is going to repeatedly say, walk in the Spirit. He's going to say, live by the Spirit. He's going to say, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and what, what's amazing is uh, that theology that the Apostle Paul gets of, of being filled with the Spirit, uh, actually the, the first time that uh, occurs is going to be re- explaining John the Baptist when he's in his mother's womb. That he's going to be filled with the Spirit uh, even at that point in time from, from birth. Uh, the next time we see it is actually uh, somebody else speaking it to the Apostle Paul. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, Ananias, who, who was sent by God uh, to go and deal with uh, this persecutor of the church. And Ananias is like, really? You want me to go to him? Uh, and after the, the scales fall away from the apostle Paul's eyes and he's looked to Jesus in faith, Ananias says, yes, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is interesting that the apostle Paul is then going to build and carry that forth, what he himself learned at his conversion. And he's going to carry that forth into uh, all of his letters in the New Testament, uh, to the New Testament churches. And ultimately, all of those who look to Jesus in faith, receive the Holy Spirit. That's what, we, that's what we have here in the upper room discourse, this promise that Jesus is, is giving to his disciples. He comes, uh, the Spirit comes to instruct uh, us in holiness and to, to lead us and to assist us in becoming more like our Savior Jesus. Now, and the, the, the Spirit is sent to be our helper, but, but him coming as a helper doesn't mean that he does everything for us. There's been much confusion uh, over the last few years uh, as uh, Teslas have gone more and more out into the the road. Uh, There's been a lot of accidents uh, that have taken place, uh, single car crashes and then multiple car crashes, because uh, the the Tesla owners and drivers, and if you own a Tesla here, I'm I'm, I'm not picking on you, uh, but uh, sometimes the, the, the owner, the driver, would assume that the car would do everything. That is, push the button, and then the car is on, on autopilot, self-drive mode. I can check out and not pay any attention. Well, that is, usually leads to a crash. It usually leads to an accident. Uh, and, and likewise, sometimes in the Christian uh, faith, there are many believers who develop that kind of a mindset. That as if the Spirit will passively sanctify me without me putting in any effort and any energy into the process. Now, now that's the case for uh, salvation, that that God is the one who saves us, who who regenerates our hearts and who justifies us. We don't do uh, anything there. God's the one who who works there. But then in the sanctification process of our spiritual growth, of of battling and dealing with sin uh, that is entrenched in our lives, you and I have to put forth effort. We can't do the the let go and let God approach. Uh, As I've said, that's not good for rock climbers or for Christians who want to grow in in our faith. Uh, We can't just let go and let God. What God is is looking for uh, is dependent effort. We're going to depend upon him, uh, but we need to carry out and we need to be faithful to do what he is calling us to do. Yes, there are some things that we are called to trust in. There are truths and promises in Scripture that you and I, we just need to believe them. 
But then there are also commands, and we need to be faithful to obey those commands. Right? We can't passively say, well, I'll just leave the commands up to God. It's like, no, you obey the commands, uh, and you trust in the promises and, and that what God will do, he will do, and what you are responsible to do, you need to be faithful to do. The Spirit being our helper doesn't mean that he does everything for us. I love, I love this, this little quote from, from the Puritan John Owen. He says, The Spirit always works in us and with us, never against us or without us. I'll say that again because it's worth writing down and meditating upon. Okay, if you want the Spirit to work in your life, you're going to need to work with Him. You don't assume that He's going to work without you. The Spirit always works in us and with us, never against us or without us. If you turn over in your, in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, the, the Apostle Paul is going to, to emphasize uh, who we are in Christ, but then he's going to call us to act. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Here, here's the results of what God has done, what the results of what God has accomplished on our behalf. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Again, an exact number, right? And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that is what is true. But then if you keep reading, we'll see now what are we called to do? What we are called to, to act. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, all of that is what God has taken place because of what God accomplished on our behalf. Uh, but if you look down at verse 9, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There you have that dependent effort. How are we to put to, to death the deeds of the flesh? By the Spirit. We rely upon Him. He is our holy helper. And undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who are discouraged and overwhelmed with our sin. It, it is discouraging to have sin present in our lives it is discouraging to have uh, sin overwhelming us at times anybody else have those moments where you look back and you're like what was i thinking what what was happening what was going on there uh, and to, to a certain extent if you haven't trusted in christ you're going to feel that way all the time but because the, the word of god says that if you haven't trusted in christ that you are a slave to sin uh, that slave is your master dominating you dictating all of your actions 
But that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says that you can be set free by looking to him. But by acknowledging your slavery to sin and that he is the only one who can set you free. That's the pathway to freedom. So those who haven't trusted in Christ will feel like a slave to sin. And it feels that way because it is that way. But then the Apostle Paul also says to the Galatians that, that once we are believers, there is this tendency to go back to our old master. That, that we go back to those things that are comfortable, even though they used to enslave us. It says that in Galatians 3. Why do you turn back to become a slave again? And so as Christians, as believers, uh, if we are still in that rut, if we're still battling against sin, and don't feel like you're the only one who's struggling there. We are all in the middle of that. We are all in the process of being sanctified and of growing in Christ-likeness. But sometimes when we're in that rut, we need help. And the help comes, first and foremost, from God's Word and God's Spirit. Again, as I said, of trusting in the promises of God, trusting in the Word of God, that it is true and what it promises can be experienced. And then secondly, we need to begin to obey. Sometimes we're wallowing in the mud because we haven't climbed out of it. We haven't looked and said, well, this is what God is calling me to do. Let me in faith begin to take steps of obedience and see what happens. And that is the pathway out. And I also want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're stuck in that rut, come talk to us. Come talk to your growth group leader. Come talk to one of the pastors or elders. Come and and have a conversation and say, I need help. Again, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. The Christian life is intended to be lived together. That we come and bear one another's burdens. We come and strengthen and bind up the weary and the brokenhearted. And those who are limping along, we need somebody to come and walk with us uh, for a period of time. And that period of time is all the time. We are dependent upon God's word, God's spirit, and God's people to help us in this battle against sin. There's another quote from, from Tim Challies. He says, Worldliness is like gravity, always around you, always exerting its pressure. That you must resist it because your spiritual life and health depend on it. And you can resist it because you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who delights in transforming you by the renewing of your mind. That there is hope in the middle of those ruts because of everything that we're reading and seeing here in the Upper Room Discourse. Because the Spirit dwells within you as a believer, there is hope to change. Uh, You don't have to be stuck in those patterns of sin. There is hope and there is help to be found in the Christian life because the teaching spirit is, has come as a holy helper. But then there's a, a second description here in the, in the middle of verse 26 that the teaching spirit is an emissary. If you look at the, the middle portion of that verse. It says, uh, whom the Father will send in my name. And again, this is, this is something that's been uh, discussed and, and mentioned in the past, but this is important for us to, to think about, that the, that the teaching spirit comes as an emissary sent by the Father in the name uh, of the Son. Uh, and again, there's other verses later on in the Upper Room Discourse where we're going to see uh, that Jesus alone is going to send the Spirit and that Jesus will send the Spirit from the Father. Uh, so the, the Father and the Son are 
are sending the Spirit together. And this builds upon a a bigger theme within John's Gospel. uh, That there is a recurring theme uh, of sending and being sent. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of John's Gospel. John chapter 1. And way back when we were studying... John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I said that was, the, that was the prologue, and that's like the foyer to John's gospel, where uh, we go into there and we can see all of the, the, the recurring themes in the book. We're introduced to them there. If you look at chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man having been sent from God. So we're introduced from the, from the beginning uh, that God is, is sending uh, into the world. And that man was John the Baptist, and he was sent, verse 7, as a witness, to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. If you turn a couple pages over to John chapter 3, verse 17, you're familiar with verse 16. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, if you look over at, in that same chapter at verse 34, for whom, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So there we see that the theme that's going to be taken up here in the, the upper room discourse, uh, we see introduced even back in John chapter 3. If you turn over to, to John chapter 5, verse 36, and there's, there's many, many more examples. I'm just kind of uh, hopscotching around. Chapter 5, verse 36, but the witness I have is greater than the witness of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And in this passage, you see, in this verse, you see that the Father sent the Son, and then the Son is doing exactly what the Father sent him to do. That the Son was sent, and he's fulfilling his mission. Uh, chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work... Of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That same chapter, verse 38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And if you look over at chapter 7, verse 33 Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to Him who sent me. Again, that, that's, that's the very topic of what is being discussed in the upper room discourse. But overall, we see a, a pattern within the Trinity here. Uh, within this pattern of, of sending and being sent, uh, God the Father, in all of these uh, explanations, God the Father is never the one who is sent. He is always the one who's doing the sending. And God the Son, uh, at times He's the one Uh, who is sent, as we saw all of those passages. Uh, And then we come here to the upper room discourse, and now the one who is sent is also going to be doing the the sending. Uh, And then uh, the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, he is never the one doing the sending, but he is always the one who is sent. So so we see this pattern within the Trinity and this theme within uh, the Gospel of John. And we see and understand that, that the Spirit is an emissary. That he is the one who is sent as an agent to act on behalf of the one sending him. Again, an, an emissary or a diplomat, an ambassador, a, a faithful emissary is going to do exactly what he has been commanded to do. 
not going to change the message. He's going to do uh, what he was sent to do, how he was sent to do it. He's going to communicate. He, he can't change the message at any point in time. One of the most famous emissaries or, or diplomats in history uh, was uh, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand. Probably heard that name. Uh, he was a French prince who, who lived uh, during the time of the French Revolution and the, the Napoleonic Wars. And he's believed to have been one of the most skilled diplomats uh, throughout uh, history. Uh, and at different times, he represented the, the French monarchy. And then he represented the, the new government after the French Revolution. And then he represented the Emperor Napoleon. And then he represented uh, the uh, Bourbon monarchy after Napoleon was dethroned. Like, that's a lot of regimes, right? And it's also believed that he was a traitor to every single one of those regimes. That if you you trace history, he was one of the most skilled diplomats. But what was he in it for the entire time? For himself. Like, how do you survive all of those revolutions unless you're switching back and forth? And isn't that the, the greatest temptation of any emissary? If you're sent on behalf of another, what's the temptation? Well, maybe I'll change the message just a little bit. If I say it that way, then I might get my head cut off. I might get shot. Well, maybe I, can, maybe I can change this a little bit and I can work a side deal. Maybe I can, I can negotiate something else for my benefit without really being faithful to, to the one who sent me. Those are the human temptations. But the Spirit does not... Do any of that. And indeed, he cannot do anything but what he has been sent to do. He's sent by the Father and the Son. And the Spirit faithfully carries out and represents the triune God as he has been commanded to. He carries out the mission of the triune God. And and, and as an emissary, he doesn't seek any glory for himself. That's not his agenda. He's simply continuing the mission that God the Father entrusted to God the Son. And then uh, as they both send the Spirit, that's going to continue forward. Now, this is important for a, it, it helps to, to correct certain false understandings of, of how the Spirit works. Okay, the Spirit never works for his own glory because he's, sent, he's an emissary of the Father and the Son. So he's, he's called to, to point people to the Son and the Son points people to the father and so there's there's much to be said and understood of any time where the the spirit is or there's an there's a focus upon the spirit focus upon the emissary rather than the the one whom is sending the emissary we know we're we're entering into error that's not what the spirit has come to do Uh, there's kind of a a prevalence in uh in many churches today of a kind of a, a a christless mysticism but where there's a focus upon uh, the working of the Spirit without a working of Christ. Uh, there's an emphasis upon the Spirit, but no emphasis upon uh, the reality that the, the Spirit is sent by Jesus and the, the Spirit points people to Jesus and that Jesus points people to God the Father. At, at the end of, of John's Gospel, we see that this pattern uh, of, of sending and being sent, it continues beyond the trinity what we see at the end of john 20 well if you see there john chapter 20 verse 21 you see 
the way that the Apostle John frames the Great Commission. Every one of the Gospels and then also in the book of Acts has a, a, a command to go forth, in essence, to make disciples. But look at how Jesus ties all of this together. So Jesus said to them again, John 20, verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So how did the Father send the Son? To be his messenger, to be his emissary, to go and fulfill uh, God's mission in the world, uh, to live and die, to save sinners from the wrath of God. Uh, That's what uh, the Son was sent into the world to do. And then the Father and Son send the Spirit, and now the Son is going to send uh, Spirit-led believers out into the world to go and proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done. To fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Again, there's this this recurring theme and an emphasis here. The Spirit is the most faithful emissary, carrying out the mission entrusted to Him. And along those same lines, again, as as the Great Commission in John's Gospel uh, says, you and I have been sent in the same way that Jesus has been sent. We are all ambassadors for Christ. It's a wonderful name for a church, by the way. But but we need to see and and wrestle with that. Uh, Is is the idea and the, the reality that you have been sent, is that even on your radar? Do you take that sending seriously? And are you being intentional about going to the ones that you've been sent to? If you've been sent, but you're going anywhere and everywhere else except doing what you're supposed to be doing. And again, those of you with young children, you've had that experience. I sent you to your room to get this. You have you've been gone for like 20 minutes. What are you doing? I don't know. Right. And we do the same things at times. Christ has, has sent us in the same way that he is sending the Spirit to dwell within us. He's now sending us to go and be his emissaries, his ambassadors. And we need to be intentional in carrying through the mission that has been entrusted to us. And if you realize that you're failing in this area, there's still hope. Because who do we have with us? A holy helper uh, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to strengthen us when we are weak. We see that the teaching spirit is a holy helper. We see that he is an emissary. And third, the teaching spirit is a remembrancer. And you're probably thinking, Thomas, you can't just make up words. You can't just, you can't do that. But that's actually a word, okay? Uh, I read it in a commentary and I had to look it up. When was the last time you used remembrancer in a sentence? But a remembrancer is one that reminds or revives the remembrance of anything. That's how the, the Webster's Dictionary uh, defined it from 1828. And listen to this. This is actually in the 1828 Dictionary. It says, God is present in the consciences of good and bad. He is there, a remembrancer, to call our actions to mind. Don't think that is in the new edition of the Webster's Dictionary. But it's there. And Webster understood this. And he understood this really from this passage, this final statement in verse 26. Says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, so there's, there's two really components to this. The, the Spirit teaching all things and then bringing to remembrance all that Jesus has said. But the, the key question is, how do these two statements uh, fit together? 
Uh, And really, the second statement explains the first, uh, that the Spirit teaches all things by bringing uh, to memory uh, what has been said. Uh, And this is is a promise that's initially given to uh, these 11 disciples in in the upper room. Uh, And uh, Jesus is, is fits well overall with what we said previously the spirit is an emissary uh, and what he does is he he reminds he points them back to the one uh, who sent Uh, he points them back to the words and the teaching of jesus Uh, and so this is this is a key concept that the spirit's not going to give new independent revelation uh, apart from what has already been revealed by god the son and what did the son come to do he builds upon what was already uh, written and proclaimed he he the son communicated and proclaimed the message of god the father he says i I only speak what god has commanded me uh, to speak Uh, and that is exactly what jesus did if you turn over to john back to john chapter 7 if you look at verses 14 through 18 They began to to question jesus but when it, it was now the middle of the feast jesus went up into the temple and began to teach the jews were marveling saying how has this man become learned that not having been educated? And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. And so we have this emphasis again of what Jesus taught was only what he received from the father. Uh, and what we see throughout the, the course of his ministry is that Jesus came and he expounded, he explained the, the Old Testament. Uh, that he uh, brought understanding to what had already been revealed. Uh, this is made clear in, in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5, uh, verses 19 to, to 21, that Jesus didn't come uh, to do away uh, with the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill it. Uh, on, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, what is it that he does? He, he explains from the scriptures and he opens the disciples' eyes to behold how the scriptures speak about him. Uh, And in John chapter 5, he points uh, to, uh, in his discussion with the Pharisees, he points to the writings of Moses. He says, Moses wrote about me. And if you believed what Moses wrote, you would also believe in Christ. Now that was his message there. Uh, And so even Jesus only teaches uh, and builds upon what has already been revealed. Uh, And the Spirit's teaching ministry uh, is in perfect alignment with this same pattern uh, of uh, building upon what has already come. uh, And to proclaim the message that he received from the Father and the Son. And he came and he helped the apostles to remember everything that Jesus taught them. And this is important because uh, the apostles taught and wrote years after they were walking with Jesus. If you think uh, the absolute latest date Jesus was probably crucified was AD 33. Now Matthew wrote his gospel sometime between probably 40 and 50. Luke wrote his gospel probably between 58 and 60. Mark based upon the eyewitness testimony of Peter between 64 and 68. And then what we're studying here in John's gospel uh, was probably written in the in the 80s. Okay, so you're talking anywhere from from 10 to 50 years from the time that they were walking with Jesus. Now, most of us aren't 50 years old yet, and we can hardly remember a conversation from last week, okay? Am I right? Uh, And those of you who have attained to that uh, age, uh, how how well do you remember conversations from 10, 20, 30, or 50 years ago? 
So, so this promise is, is really, really important because it assures us that what is written and what is recorded uh, is inspired and it is accurate. Uh, and, and this promise here, I think, gives assurance to what uh, the Apostle Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty... For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he describes what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And then he says this in verse 19. And we have as more sure... The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So he says what we have written down is more trustworthy than his own eyewitness testimony, because what we have inscripturated for us is fully inspired and without error. And the apostle Peter knew that and understood that because he understood the promise that Jesus gave there in the upper room. And we even see this playing itself out within John's gospel. If you turn back to John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary. This is after he cleansed the temple. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders. He says, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples did what? Remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Who was it that brought that to remembrance? The spirit. If you look over at John chapter 12, verse 16, we have something similar. Again, the emphasis upon uh, a future remembering, looking back into the past. 12:16 These things his disciples did not understand at the first but when Jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done uh, these things to him uh, And so uh, there's a quote here from from DA Carson he says one of the spirit's princip- principal tasks after Jesus is glorified is to remind the disciples of Jesus's teaching and thus in the new situation after the resurrection to help them grasp its significance and thus to teach them what it meant. But then there's a kind of a looming question out there. If this was a promise that was uh, given to the apostles and it ensured that they would come to a full and complete understanding of what Jesus taught uh, and that they would correctly convey and write that down in the New Testament, does this have any application to us today? Uh, and, and I would say, yes, it does. And I would take these steps because the Spirit is coming and He is a, a holy helper. He is an emissary and He is uh, coming as a remembrancer. And that same spirit who dwelt within the apostles and gave them and worked in that same way, who is he now dwelling within? Every single believer. Uh, And so I think the spirit is here uh, to function in that same way in you and I uh, and all of those who have believed throughout church history. And this is known as the doctrine of illumination, where the the Holy Spirit works in the mind of a believer to help us understand the Bible. But here's some some important clarifications concerning this doctrine of illumination. These come from uh, systematic theology, uh, biblical doctrine by uh, Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew. 
And so they have these clarifications that illumination does not function outside of God's word. It's always in connection with God's word. So God helps you to understand uh, as you read and are studying the scriptures. Secondly, illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally because the human element can cause false doctrine. We see this even in uh, Galatians chapter 2 where you had uh, the Apostle Paul having to confront the Apostle Peter uh, for uh, not walking faithfully. So there's, there can be wrong understandings. It's not because the Spirit isn't working. It's because we're still sinful. Third, illumination does not mean that everything about God is knowable. Because uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. But what has been revealed belongs to who? To us and to our children. Now, fourth, illumination does not render the need for human teachers unnecessary. We see this, the pattern of the New Testament church is that there's still to be those who study and proclaim God's word. Fifth, illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. Again, it's not a let go and let God. You still need to be faithful and active in studying and learning God's word. And then sixth, uh, illumination is not a one-time experience. Again, we see this in 2 Timothy 2.15. He tells Timothy, who is a pastor, he says, Make sure you uh, are diligent and faithful to study the word that you may be an approved workman. So I think that the Spirit still works in us, and this doctrine of illumination is help. It's there to He is there to help us understand as we study God's Word. But I also think our passage, by showing us how the Holy Spirit works, also instructs us about what a good teacher is like. That a faithful teacher of God's Word is not going to go beyond the Scriptures and claim to have additional revelation. A faithful teacher is going to cling to old truths, cling to the Word of God. And to one degree or another, you and I are all commanded to be a remembrancer. Okay? Uh, the pastors and elders are to be a remembrancer to the whole church. Uh, we are to, to teach you what God's word has already said. And if you've heard it before, that's great. Because the key to learning is repetition. You've got to learn things and hear it over and over again. Uh, the church is to be a remembrancer to one another. Uh, each of us here is to remind others, hey, follow Jesus. Don't, don't pick that up. Don't do that. Don't go th- over there. Follow Jesus. Don't turn towards sin. Now, we as individuals have a duty of remembering. You can call it the, the spiritual discipline of remembering. That you are called to remember and trust everything that God has said and commanded in his word. And then the church is commanded to be a remembrancer to the world. And, and that's getting more and more hostile, but we are called to do that. That's evangelism. That's going out and proclaiming who Jesus is, what he has done, and we can't shrink back from that. Every parent and grandparent is called to be a remembrancer as you teach and model the faith to younger generations. Uh, every, every college student, every high school, middle school student, every one of you is called to be a remembrancer to one another, to your peers. You have the opportunity to go and and proclaim and live out the gospel. And you need to be reminding people that they belong to a creator. Not not primordial ooze that they've evolved from, but they belong to a creator that they're one day going to have to give an account to. And they've suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, and you're called to, to proclaim and point them to the truth. And we need to dwell upon and remember what God has proclaimed to us in his word. And the teaching spirit, who is a holy helper, an emissary, and a remembrancer, is here to lead us and guide us and to strengthen us along the way. And this is where the, the, 
again, we need to be reminded of what we already know more often than we need to learn new things. What we need that uh, reminding continually. I love the, the picture of this in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, where uh, Christian and Hopeful are, are locked away in Doubting Castle, uh, held in the dungeons of, of giant despair. Uh, and, and they are down there, uh, and, and this is what Christian realizes. This is now a little before it was day. Good Christian, as, as one half amazed, broke into this earnest speech. He says, what a fool. What a fool am I to lie in a foul-smelling dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am sure, be uh, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And then said, hopeful, that is good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try it. So they're in the Doubting Castle, and what is it? That, that Christian does, he remembers. He remembers what God has said, what God has proclaimed in his word. And he's like, okay, I'm going to act upon that. I'm going to believe it, trust in it, and then begin to move forward based upon those promises. But the key is, if, as long as he wasn't remembering, where was he? He was stuck. Wasn't moving forward. We have to be remembrancers. We have to remember what God has said in his word. And, and the spirit is here to help us. But we need to, to know and study the word of God. We need to pray for remembrance. The Lord is able to help our faulty memories. And then we need to begin to act. Amen.